0: Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. Man, what a couple of weeks these past couple of weeks have been. Two weeks ago, there was an outage at the station where I record this podcast, so I wasn't able to deliver to you before the 4th of July or on the 4th of July weekend, the weekend preceding 4th of July. And then the weekend after that, I had very limited access to the internet, so I wasn't able to give you the movie news that you, I would assume, so require. For this show, but now things are back to normal. Other than the big pile of wood that's outside, that as that is as a result of the foresters coming here and dividing the tree that fell down into various parts, so that they're out of the way and and safe uh, for the people who are coming to do our our shows like me. Things are pretty much back to normal here at the station, and I also have some other movies to which I have to catch up for you. One of them is brand new, and I probably would not have been able to do this show without reviewing at least this one movie. But I have three other films that are not quite as new, but there are ones that I've seen over the last couple of weeks. And because of technical difficulties, I was not able to review them for you until now. So now that I have four movies to review for you for this show, let's get into the reviews. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you, which is not guaranteed to be a big box office hit, but it looks very promising, is the movie Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. And the reason I say it's not a promising movie uh, hit at the box office is because there have been a surprising number of films that have been hits and there have been some other films that have been surprising in terms of their content, in terms of their budget, that have actually been big box office flops. And people, including myself, but most especially some box office analysts who have more experience with knowing what works and what doesn't with films, are asking themselves, why did these film f- films flop over others? I'm asking myself the same question, but I'm not exactly with the same kind of expertise. There have been some movies that have been big, that have been flops, that I thought were exceptionally good, and they flopped for one reason or another. If they haven't been exceptionally good, they've at least been serviceable. And, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 is one of those films that I saw. I actually, a little bit of of spoiler alert, really loved it, but I can't say whether or not this movie is going to be a flop. On the one hand, it has some things going for it. For one, Tom Cruise is considered for to many to be the last movie star, and by that I mean he seems to be the only person who's still making movies these days to whom moviegoers actually want to see. He's the name on the marquee, and he is probably the last person nowadays to actually sell a movie himself. Another thing that's going for this film is not only its big budget of $295 million, which not only makes it one of the most expensive Mission Impossible movies ever made, but it's also one of the most expensive movies ever made, period. That's another thing it has going for it. But a third thing it has going for it is a very promising franchise. This is the seventh Mission Impossible movie in 27 years. In fact, this movie franchise has been so successful that a lot of people seem to forget that Mission Impossible was a TV series in the 60s before it became a movie. And it was part of that trend in the 90s of movies that were made that were based on TV shows. Some of them were successful, like Mission Impossible and The Fugitive, and others not so much, like, for example, The Flintstones. But in any event, Mission Impossible, the the franchise with Tom Cruise as Ethan Hunt has been, has kind of surpassed it being a gimmick based on a TV show. And actually, the sequels for the movies, particularly part four and beyond have proven themselves to be better in terms of their narrative quality, not just their budget than their original three predecessors. I can't speak very much for mission impossible three because I haven't seen it. It's the only mission impossible movie I have not seen to date, but mission impossible one and two, even though they had an impressive cast and an impressive budget were lacking in terms of storytelling as well as some of its realistic credibility. But Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning has some other things going for it besides a bankable star and a promising franchise. Christopher McQuarrie is coming back for the third time as a director, and he is also not coming back for the last time. As is evidenced from the fact that this movie is called Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, you know this won't be the last Mission Impossible movie. But is it worth it based on what you see on the screen. Well, let me tell you a little bit about this episode of Mission Impossible. What does dead reckoning mean? After having seen the movie, I don't exactly know, but the actual premise of this film is quite original, not to mention quite timely. And when I saw that a new Mission Impossible movie was coming out, I kind of had the same reaction as when I saw that a new Fast and Furious movie was coming out as well as a new Transformers <clears throat> excuse me a Transformers movie were, was coming out. They've made so many of these over the last 20 years. What makes this one so special, especially considering that the last film in the Mission Impossible franchise, Mission Impossible Fallout, was an excellent film. Not to mention it was about a nuclear bomb. How do you top that? Well, apparently it hasn't been easy probably not not in terms not just in terms of the budget but also in terms of the screenwriting and the storytelling but somehow they pulled off the Mission Impossible team team trying to avert a, a nuclear bomb. In this case the mission that is indeed seemingly impossible has IMF agent Ethan Hunt having a new mission to retrieve half of a key from his ally, Ilsa Faust, on whom IMF has placed a bounty. He travels to the empty quarter in the Arabian desert, briefly reunites with Ilsa, and tells her to lay low. And what is this key to which Ethan Hunt is trying to retrieve both halves? Well, it turns out that there is an experimental AI called the entity and AI is very controversial nowadays, especially considering that there was a recent 60 minutes story that was hosted by Scott Pelley. This 60 minutes AI story was about how AI is becoming not only a lot more computational and efficient that way, but also becoming computational in a kind of creative way where it can write screenplays, it can write poems, and could potentially put a lot of white-collar workers and a lot of creative workers out of a job. That is very timely, and it's probably, it's actually one of the big reasons that there's a strike right now with the Writers Guild of America as well as the Screen Actors Guild and the American Federation of Television and Radio Actors, SAG-AFTRA. Uh, who have combined into one union. It's a very hot topic. And Mission Impossible Dead Reckonings Part 1's timing in terms of that story is very timely. I could go into a lot of the other characters in this film, but it's going to take me a while. There are protagonists, there are antagonists, and throughout the film you're not exactly sure which ones are going to be the protagonists antagonists at the end there are a lot of very interesting twists and turns here and for a movie with a budget of 295 million dollars which is 95 million dollars more than it cost to make the movie titanic I can honestly say that the budget is very well used here, but what I liked more than the special effects was actually the fact that there were some twists and turns, not only in terms of the characters and their motivations, but there were also some other things in this impossible mission that seemed to go particularly well to a point up until something goes wrong with the best laid plans of Mice and Men. And I really loved that part of this entry into the Mission Impossible series where things went wrong in in various aspects and the IMF agents really tried to improvise on the whim. I thought that actually accounted for the most brilliant parts of this movie. And I also really liked the fact that Arguably more in this film than other previous Mission Impossible entries, it wasn't just Tom Cruise, or it wasn't just the men in the IMF unit who were actually doing a lot of the action. There, the supporting women in this in this film, particularly Haley Atwell, who plays an amateur pickpocket by the name of Grace. Uh, Rebecca Ferguson, who plays the IMF agent Ilsa Faust, as well as a rogue vig- vigilante by the name of the White Widow, who's played by Vanessa Kirby, in addition to another one who's simply known as Paris, who's played by Palm Clementiev. They share in a lot of the same kind of action as well. And I could go into some of the other, Actors in this film who play characters who may or may not be protagonists or antagonists, but I really don't want to spoil this film for you because it is indeed an experience. Plus, it is two hours, 43 minutes long, but with the exception of a few parts that involved some somewhat dry exposition, it went by incredibly fast, especially in the climax of the film that involved a train. And this part was actually even better executed than a part involving a train in Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. I could go on and on about Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, but it is a worthy entry into the Mission Impossible uh, franchise, in addition to the fact that it's, it achieves an impossible mission in that the sequels so far, at least Part 4 through Part 7, have already surpassed parts one through three. That almost never happens in movies, especially franchises. But it's enough for me to give Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning part one my rating of a knockout. It's a very exciting film. It's a very intelligent film. And the downside of it is once it ends after two hours, 45 minutes, You want to see part two, but you're not going to see it until the subject date of sometime in June, 2024. I'm sorry to give you that news, but it just goes to show you that some people would probably watch a six hour movie of this film based on the first part of this movie, and that is a testament to how good the first part of Dead Reckoning actually is, even though I still don't know what Dead Reckoning actually means. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Ruby Gilman, Teenage Kraken. This is the latest film from DreamWorks Animation, which is also distributed by Universal Pictures. And it's a film that shows that while DreamWorks was a giant in the animation department, about 20 years ago, now the quality of its animation, and not necessarily its storytelling, but definitely its animation has decreased over the last few years, but I wouldn't put Ruby Gilman Teenage Kraken in the same kind of category as, for example, a poorly animated film like Norm of the North, for example. But Ruby Gilman Teenage Kraken is the movie about a shy adolescent who learns that she comes from a fabled royal family of legendary sea krakens and that her destiny lies in the depths of the waters, which is bigger than she could have ever imagined. So one of the ways that I believe this film is not resonating with many people is that the name of the film. First of all, there's that name occupation. For example, there are great movies with that name occupation title, like for example, Ace Ventura Pet Detective or Austin Powers International Man of Mystery. But then there are some other really bad ones like Deuce Bigelow Male Gigolo or Bucky Larson Born to be a Star. And I'm not just saying that because those are Happy Madison Productions. I'm saying that because those are very poor films that also give you a little bit of an overall synopsis of how these films actually are. But one of the things that might deter some people from seeing this film is the name Teenage Kraken. Because a lot of people are going to ask themselves, what's a Kraken? Well, the Kraken is not particularly well known, particularly in American circles, not the same way that, for example, the Loch Ness Monster is, for example. But the Kraken is a legendary sea monster of enormous size and it's said to first have appeared off the coast of Norway. It was first described in a travelogue by Francesco Negri in the year 1700. And since then, The Kraken has been used in various other comic books, stories, and a few movies, although it's been quite a while since the Kraken has been used in a mainstream hit, so... That actually probably deters some people from seeing this film. Also, you learn that Ruby Gilman is part of a family who is clearly not human. And they live in the seaside town of Oceanside, California, where Ruby Gilman and her Kraken family have been trying to fit in with humans. And it's kind of one of those things where they don't look human. They look like they have more than one leg. They have a different shade of um, skin color, which is not the shade of any human being that hasn't been affected, uh, affected by a nuclear disaster. So despite that, the people in this seaside town of Oceanside, California, which sounds like a real California town, but I don't actually think it is, kind of see them as humans. They have assimilated very well, even though they don't look human themselves. But in any event, Ruby Gilman is 15 years old and she knows that she's not like other people in her high school, including her circle of friends who are also misfits, even though they are actually humans. And eventually Ruby finds suction cups on her fingers and then when she finds that she touches seawater she finds that she transforms into a kraken. I guess apparently it would have been probably more believable if she was actually, if she looked like a human being, but then, kind, but then once she touched water, she turned into a sea monster. But if her family was trying to, or her immediate family was trying to conceal from her how she's a kraken, why did they decide to assimilate in a seaside town? where the water is within walking distance of their house? What if a flood happened? She's eventually going to know. So I don't really understand the logic here. And Ruby Gilman, Teenage Kraken is actually, fortunately, based on original concept. The script and the screenplay were written by Pam Brady, Brian C. Brown, and uh, Elliot Giesby, D. Giesby. And it doesn't Uh, It seems like one of those movies that's either based on a comic book or based on a series of children's stories. So that might actually work against it in terms of people wanting to see the film, especially considering its comparison to other films that are out there for people to see, not just at the movies, but also at home on streaming. But once you learn that the Krakens are at odds with mermaids that live in the sea, you begin to see a twist, especially when Ruby Gilman befriends a mermaid who is also assimilating like her into her high school. You begin to realize that there is a twist later. And I'm not going to reveal what that twist is, but I probably implied what the twist is already. So Ruby Gilman, Teenage Kraken is a film that is original in the sense that somebody else came up with it themselves as opposed to it being based on a previous medium. And I actually did like some of the underwater scenes, especially when Ruby Gilman, who's voiced by Lana Condor, uh, begins to get to know her grandmother, who's known as Grandmama, who is the queen of the Krakens below the sea. And Grandmama, in a very great casting choice, is voiced by Jane Fonda. And there are some other people who are um, voice actors in this movie, like Tony Collette and Will Forte, who do pretty well with the roles that they're given as voice actors. But I didn't think this movie was particularly special, at least not when it came to the other films that are out there. We've seen that kind of plot development before where there's a teenager in high school who's trying to fit in, but then she finds out that there's something actually special about her, and she's dealing with other things in school like trying to fit in with her classmates and also her having a crush on somebody in school. I think we've seen that primarily in The Incredibles amongst other films that are either animated or not. But Rudy Gil- Ruby Gilman, Teenage Kraken is a pretty good film. I thought especially the climax at the end was worth seeing. But some of the motivations of some of the other characters, particularly the Kraken family that decided to live overseas rather than underseas, didn't really make a lot of sense. If They really wanted to, to assimilate into their human culture, why didn't they just move to Nebraska or Tennessee or one of those other states that's not near the water? That would have made a hell of a lot more sense. But Ruby Gilman Teenage Kraken, I suppose, is relatively harmless. And it's original in the sense that somebody else came up with it and didn't base it on a previous medium. But on the other hand, it does use a lot of other tropes that we've seen in countless other movies before, which is why I give Ruby Gilman Teenage Kraken my rating of a marginal checkout. Obviously, the character design in this is very creative. The animation for as low a budget as this film has is serviceable, but it pales in comparison to Ants or the Shrek movies or any of the other better films that, DreamWorks Animation has done previously. It might be seen as an underdog when it comes to home media sooner or later, but as it stands right now, I can marginally recommend it because it's harmless, but I can't recommend it because it's great because it really isn't. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is a Netflix documentary that premiered on the platform on July 6th, 2023. The movie is called Take Care of Maya. This is a documentary that's directed by Henry Roosevelt, and it's about a girl by the name of Maya Kowalski who developed a rare illness back when she was 10 years old, that debilitated her use of her arms and her legs. She wasn't paralyzed, but her arms and her legs detorted in very disturbing and very painful ways. And as a medical team in their native Florida is trying to understand this 10-year-old's rare illness, they begin to question her parents and when they do, Maya Kowalski is put in state custody despite a family desperate to bring their daughter home. And there are a lot of complications that happen with the Kowalski family in this documentary. And the girl who is at, who's given a chance to be interviewed here is placed in state custody and separated from her parents when an investigation into how good her parents are takes place. And there are actually some various twists and turns here about the validity of whether the hospital and child services were credible in their being suspicious of Maya Kowalski's parents. And this is a very complicated and very controversial documentary because Hospitals do have good reason to investigate the the children that are brought in for various illnesses and injuries as to whether or not their parents are being abusive to them or not. And the movie makes you want to think that the Kowalski parents are good parents and are not uh, abusive to their children at all. And the fact that actually Maya Kowalski was interviewed for this this documentary, does give the documentary a lot of credibility. It's not just the word of Maya Kowalski's father or her mother. But the movie does actually really well in not only interviewing the Kowalski family, but also actually demonstrating some of their phone calls in the documentary itself. And it's great to see this kind of documentary made. It just does not end on either a happy note or a sad note, but it does unravel a conspiracy behind some of the intentions of the child care services in this children's hospital in which Maya Kowalski was admitted. And it does not pull any punches in terms of telling you or demonstrating to you through clever exposition what the motives behind some of these organizations would be. But as the movie ended, I didn't quite have a grasp on what the motivations of these child care services would be, casting some dispersions on parents who seem to be good parents and wouldn't be abusive to their children at all. And it seems like a lot of lives have been ruined because of this conspiracy or this conspiracy theory. And it's very obvious that the Kowalski family participated in this, in this documentary with a lot of cooperation, but constantly we're given written subtitles that tell us that the representatives from John Hopkins Children's Hospital, as well as the... Florida child care services division were reached out for a comment and they either declined or they didn't answer the filmmakers calls. There's not a lot that can be done about this, but if the movie can open up some of the shady practices, allegedly shady practices of some of these divisions, then I think the movie would have served its purpose. And I think it's also very good that Netflix releases a documentary like this on streaming as opposed to in movies, because now it has a wider audience. But Take Care of Maya is a very tragic documentary, but it is a very intriguing one that does ask a lot of questions. It doesn't answer all the questions that it asks, but it leaves it to the viewers themselves to maybe either answer or speculate enough to know that something is amiss with the practices of some of these government services that are intended to protect people who are sick, or families of people who are sick. But Take Care of Maya is a heavy documentary, but not an unimportant one, and not an unorganized one, which is why I give Take Care of Maya my rating of A knockout. It is a very sad documentary, especially when one of the members of the Kowalski family meets their fate. I'm not going to tell you how this person meets this person's fate. I'm not going to tell you what they do, but I will tell you that it is very sad. But if it asks a lot of very important questions and it leaves it to the viewers or maybe some people who know the viewers to answer, then a documentary like this probably would have served its purpose. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is another documentary. This time, it is an Apple TV Plus original that is called Still a Michael J. Fox Movie. Now, I do not actually subscribe to Apple TV Plus, and the reason I don't is mainly because I... It seems like Apple TV Plus in particular has more of a focus on TV shows than it does movies. It does release original movies on there, but not as many as other streaming platforms like Netflix, Hulu, or Paramount Plus, just to name a few. But when I heard that Apple TV Plus was releasing still a Michael J. Fox movie, I knew I had to see it. But I didn't see it on Apple TV+. Instead, I actually saw it a month later when it was released in a theater near me. In my case, it is my favorite theater in Nashville, Tennessee, which is the Belcourt Theater, which shows a mix of old and new movies. And whenever there's a high-profile movie on Apple TV+, and it says it's being released first on Apple TV+, on a given date, and later in theaters, Belcourt is usually the theater around Nashville who shows it, first, and I'm glad they do because I would rather go to the movies to see a film than see it at home. I'm not against streaming, but I'm just saying that I get the full movie experience when I actually go to a theater and watch a movie. But still, a Michael J. Fox movie premiered at this year's Sundance Film Festival on January 20th of this year, 2023. And as I said previously, it was released on Apple TV Plus on May 12th of this year, and then later released into select theaters. And it is definitely a documentary that's worth watching because whether you like or you hate Michael J. Fox, and my guess is because Michael J. Fox has always been a likable guy maybe not so much on Family Ties, but in many of the other movies and TV shows in which he's acted, he. a lot of people probably don't hate him. But even if you don't especially like him, you can probably sense from this documentary that he has been going through something through his adult's life through which probably not a lot of people, including many people's worst enemies, deserve to go through. But... Still, a Michael J. Fox movie is not just about Michael J. Fox's struggles with Parkinson's, although that is a big plot thread in this documentary. It's also about Michael J. Fox's life, and it's told from his perspective. And it's a very honest look at Michael J. Fox's uh, unlikely rise to fame, as well as a very quick rise to fame, Um from his days being a kid in Canada to ultimately becoming first a TV star as the Alex P Keaton in Family Ties, a role that I literally grew up watching uh, him play. And then he ultimately became a movie star when he replaced Eric Stoltz in the first Back to the Future film. And he had been on a steady rise ever since, And even some of the projects he did in the 90s, which weren't as huge as they were in the 80s, like when he was in movies like Life with Mikey, as well as TV shows like Spin City, were still very well received. And then his Parkinson's probably got so intense that he ultimately had to leave his hit TV show Spin City. But since then, he's been active, he's been an optimist. And he has also raised a lot of awareness about Parkinson's disease, to which I say, and not just with his documentary, I say all the power to him. Because now, even though he is still of sound mind, and even though he is communicating particularly well, his Parkinson's is visibly getting the best of him, even when he's getting the best medical treatment. But all the power to Michael J. Fox he is paying it forward in terms of not only raising awareness of Parkinson's disease, but also establishing organizations that raise awareness of the disease as well as work to ultimately find a cure. Sadly, it is unlikely that they will find a cure in Michael J. Fox's lifetime or even in my lifetime. But at least with Michael J. Fox and the work he's doing, He's at least off to a very good start, and this documentary is probably earning a permanent place in not only Michael J. Fox's illustrious career, but also in this ultimate awareness of this crippling disease. And I don't know of anyone who would see this captivating documentary and say anything bad about it, even if they may not like Michael J. Fox. And again, Michael J. Fox is not like one of those Fox News personalities who are hated more than they are liked. He's always played, or most of the time played, a very likable guy. Even when Alex P. Keaton was at his worst, Michael J. Fox still played him as very likable. So... Yeah, Michael J. Fox has usually played someone very likable. He's played him very well. And this documentary kind of shows that his likable side is probably not that much of an acting stretch. And if it is, Michael J. Fox does a great job hiding it. But it's definitely worth a look. I think anyone who has has a family member who's struggling with Parkinson's, will get a lot out of this documentary, but on top of that, even though I don't know anybody personally who has struggled with Parkinson's disease other than some of the high profile people like Janet Reno or Muhammad Ali, both of whom are sadly no longer with us. I still got a lot from this documentary, and I had even more of an appreciation for Michael J. Fox than I had before, and I still had a lot of respect for the guy, but still, a Michael J. Fox movie gets my rating of a knockout. If you don't have Apple TV+, Plus, my suggestion would be not necessarily to subscribe to it, but find someone who subscribes to it and watch this documentary with them, because this documentary is totally worth seeing, and it is definitely an eye-opening documentary. And even though Michael J. Fox himself has not been too private about his struggles with Parkinson's, I think that this movie even gives you more of an insight through his struggles that maybe even some of his interviews or his testifying before the U.S. Senate wouldn't even give you. But it's definitely worth a look maybe even seeing it twice and so far still a michael j fox movie is one of the it's the best documentary of the year that i've seen so far it could be one of the best films of the year but the year is young we of course will have to see Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my final segment, which is what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters and or on streaming for the week of July 16th through July 21st, 2023. And full disclosure, I am actually not going to be doing my show next weekend. The reason for that is because I am actually going on vacation. I'm going to Maine, which is the state in which I was born and raised, because my dad is celebrating his 70th birthday party. So before I sign off from the show, I just want to give a very premature but heartfelt happy birthday to my dad, John Edmund Burke happy birthday, dad. But of course, I will be seeing you in a week. So I will give my happiest of happy birthdays then. Unfortunately for my listening audience, I won't be doing my show next week. But when I come back to do my show, presumably on July 29th, date subject to change, I will have a backlog of movies with which I will have to review for you. So For the week of July 16th through July 21st, 2023, there are a number of films coming out. One of them is subject to being released in theaters on July 16th, 2023, which this year is a Sunday. And this movie is called Nightmare School Moms. This is a movie about two mothers who battle to see which of their overachieving daughters will be accepted to a prestigious university. However, when one of their methods quickly spirals out of control, the games turned deadly. So this film is not a documentary, it is a dramatization, and it is categorized as a thriller. It is also rated TVPG, which suggests that this film will be released onto streaming. What streaming platform, I don't exactly know, but it could be released on Netflix, I don't know, but... I'm not given any information on what platform on which this will be released, or even if it will be released in the theaters. The director of this movie is Danny J. Boyle, but it's not the same Danny Boyle who directed Train Spotting or Slumdog Millionaire. That's why he's known as Danny J. Boyle. He does have my initials, which is kind of cool, but then again, this seems like an original movie, and the stars of the movie include Rachel Waters, Crystal Allen, Gregory Mitchell, April Hale, and Logan Mariner, just to name a few. So no household names here, at least none that are yet household names. It sounds like a very intriguing premise. It kind of reminds me of the 1999 film Drop Dead Gorgeous, which starred uh, Kirstie Alley, Kirsten Dunst, Denise Richards, Ellen Barkin, and a then-unknown Amy Adams. That was a funny movie. But I don't know if Nightmare School Moms will be as funny, but I kind of love satires about greedy and myopic suburban parents who helicopter their, par- uh, who helicopter their children. Uh, but anyway, I'm, I'm not guaranteeing this is a film I will see. If I do, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on July 20th 2023, which is a Thursday, is a movie that's called The Evil of Dracula. This is a horror film, and it's about a professor who takes up a post at an all-girls school only to, to discover the school's principal conceals a dark secret and the pupils are in grave danger. Now, the principal is spelled P-R-I-N-C-I-P-L-E, which means a, a way of living or a rule, but Principal as in somebody who is the head of a school is P-R-I-N-C-I-P-A-L. So I don't know if the school's principal as in its rules contain conceal a dark secret, or if the, the head of the school does, or, you know, whether or not it's a misprint, but the, the people who act in this film include miles, John Dalton, who plays count Dracula Antonio Mayans, who plays Van Helsing. And you also have Ellen Wing and Michael Christian, uh, the latter of whom plays Edgar Allan Poe. So interesting characters here. None of these actors I know either personally or impersonally. In other words, they're not household names. And I don't know if I'm going to see this film because I honestly don't know if it's going to come out in a theater near me. If it does, I may review it for you on a future show. But July 21st is where there are two huge profile movies that are coming out in theaters or subject to being released in theaters. One of the biggest that, is, that may be a box office hit, although, although there's no such thing as a sure thing, is a movie that's called Barbie. And this is a movie that has seemed to earn the attention of some people who did not like Barbies when they were children, like me. And surprisingly enough... Not only does this have a, have a great cast that includes Margot Robbie as the titular Barbie and Ryan Gosling as Ken, I mean, these are Oscar-nominated actors here playing what looks to be a kitsch movie, but it is directed by Greta Gerwig. And this is the biggest budget film that Greta Gerwig has directed so far, as well as what could arguably considered be considered her most mainstream film, in which she has uh, directed so far. She emerged on the scene as a director by having directed a film called Nights and Weekends back in 2008, which didn't make a huge splash. Critically, her next film, 2017's Lady Bird, made a big splash, and her 2019 adaptation of Little Women was also a critical favorite as well. I can't say too much about that version of Little Women because I haven't actually seen it, but... It was very well received critically and earned several Oscar nominations. But Barbie is a huge departure from Lady Bird and Little Women, both in terms of its subject matter as well as its budget in general. And interestingly enough, Greta Gerwig's husband, Noah Baumbach, co-wrote the screenplay. Now, Noah Baumbach is even more indie than Greta Gerwig is. Noah Baumbach has directed such films in his... Repertoire as a director. Uh, He's directed 16 films so far, many of which to which he's written the screenplay. He emerged on the screen in 1995 when he directed Kicking and Screaming, which was um, a flawed movie, but it had its moments. He also directed Highball in 1997. Mr. Jealousy also in 1997. The Squid and the Whale in 2005, which featured another future actor-turned-director in its cast, who was Owen Klein. It also featured such celebrated actors as Jeff Daniels, Laura Linney, and Jesse Eisenberg. He also directed Margot at the Wedding, Greenberg, Francis Ha, While We're Young, and Mistress America, amongst other Movies. The last movie that he directed was White Noise, which I did not see, but I really want to. But I've appreciated Noah Baumbach as a writer and as a director. I'm just amazed that he and Greta Gerwig, who are as indie as they get, wrote this movie that is based on the toy from Mattel. And interestingly enough, Mattel has a films division, and this is their biggest film yet. And it's actually probably their most promising film is probably going to pay tribute to Barbie in addition to satirizing Barbie's image image over the last few decades because she has sometimes earned the praise of some feminists and the ear of other feminists. And this film is one that I will see, and I'll let you know what I think on a future show, but it's not going to be next week's show. But this movie that's coming up ne- that's coming up around the same time as Barbie is a film that looks like an Oscar contender arguably more than the Barbie movie would this film is Oppenheimer now Oppenheimer has a lot of things going for it it's directed by and co-written by Christopher Nolan it has a very stellar cast of actors including Cillian Murphy who's been in other Christopher Nolan films previously. It also has Academy Award nominees, Matt Damon and Robert Downey Jr. I almost said Emily Blunt. Emily Blunt is in the movie, but she has not been nominated for an Oscar yet. She should have been nominated for a number of films in which she's acted, including The Devil Wears Prada and Sicario, amongst others, but she's been snubbed more times than uh, some other actresses who might not have deserved the nominations as much. But some of the other actors in the film include Jason Clark and Kenneth Branagh, amongst others. And Oppenheimer is a film about the American scientist J. Robert Oppenheimer and his role in the development of the atomic bomb. So this is a biography. How true it is to J. Robert Robert Oppenheimer's life, I don't exactly know but my guess is that Christopher Nolan is going to do some wonderful things with this, with his artistic license and Christopher Nolan really needs no introduction as a director. He has been nominated for Oscars uh, rather he's been nominated for Oscars five times as a director. He's been nominated at least twice and the dark Knight trilogy which had him practically reinvent Batman on the big screen is still considered one of the greatest movie trilogies of all time. Not just the greatest, um, in can not just the greatest comic book movie trilogy of all time, but as a director, he's been nominated twice. Once for, uh, actually, I I take that back. As a director, he's been nominated once for Dunkirk, which should have won Best Picture in 2018, in my opinion. The Shape of Water won Best Picture instead. That was a serviceable movie, but I did think Dunkirk was better. But he's been nominated five times for Oscars, once for Best Original Screenplay for Memento, uh, once for Best Original Screenplay for Inception, once for Best Picture Inception, once for Best Picture Dunkirk, and the last time I mentioned was for Best Director. So this is a film that looks very ambitious. I'm not guaranteeing it's going to be a hit either critically or commercially, but I'm very excited to see it, and I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on July 21st is a movie that's called Cobweb. This does have familiar, some familiar faces in it, and it looks to be an underdog compared to Barbie and Oppenheimer. But it is a horror thriller that stars Lizzie Kaplan, and it's about an eight-year-old boy named Peter who tries to investigate the mysterious knocking noises that are coming from inside the walls of his house in a dark secret that his sinister parents kept hidden from him. Whew. Now, in this film, Lizzie Kaplan who usually is in a lot of light comedies, is presumably one of these parents. And to see Lizzie Kaplan scary will be definitely something different. But I'm very interested to see this film. I don't know if it's coming out in the theater near me, but if it does, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. And the last movie that's subject to being released in theaters is a movie that's called Mother May I, another horror film that's based on a game that kids played as children. So anyway, when Anya starts behaving like her recently deceased mother, Emmett must confront his deepest traumas to free his fiance from this bewildering possession. So it seems to delve into the same kinds of themes of cobwebs in the sense that childhood can be scary and not just nostalgic. This is a film that stars Daphne Gaines, Kyle Gallner, Michael Giannone, and Chris Mulkey amongst other people. I don't know if this movie is coming out in a theater near me, but if it does, I'll let you know what I think. And I see it, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.